0: Hello everyone, welcome to Commentaries from the Edge. This is Karen Goldberg, and here's what's coming up next. I am absolutely honored and thrilled that we have a distinguished human rights lawyer with us today on the program, Barry Fisher, who is based in Los Angeles, California, and who has spent his entire long career, over 40 years, working to protect the rights of everyone from being limited, especially if they happen to be people who are vulnerable to having their rights being taken away, or are people that have struggled themselves in some way to be able to keep their voice. Barry is had such a long distinguished career that it would take all of the program to go over the many things that he has been involved in. So this is a very quick and brief abbreviation, uh, he most recently, I would say, has received an award that is this year in 2021, being declared the International Lawyer of the Year of the California Bar Association. He also has been awarded the South Korean ri Peace Prize. He has traveled the world uh, doing the work he has done in human rights and, of course, all over the country of the United States. he Just to mention a very brief list, he has been a lawyer with the Holocaust survivors suing to retrieve family funds from Swiss banks. He has worked with the indigenous people of Chiapas, Mexico, being requested by Comandante Marcos, the leader there who was negotiating for the rights of indigenous people with the, the country of Mexico, the president of Mexico, which uh, he, he asked Barry to be part of that negotiation. Uh, Barry has also been a lawyer involved with the Kurds in various different countries. He has been a consultant with many countries in legal matters Uh, on various different continents. He's also been a counsel on behalf of Chinese, Korean, and other Asian victims of sexual slavery during wartime Japan. He has been involved with Bosnia in human rights abuses, and he has also been a counselor in, in numerous cases in front of the United States Supreme Court. So welcome, Barry. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and to have an opportunity to focus on one particular area that is often misunderstood in terms of the people themselves, and that is the Gypsies, the Romani people who, of course, have traveled around the world, um, exist in various different countries. And today we're going to be focusing on the work that Barry Fisher has done, particularly with the Romani people. So thank you so much and welcome.
1: Thank you. Um a, a quick correction and uh and an omission that I want to draw your listeners to. Uh, thank you. The, the omission is that I I was a pioneer in environmental law which I still continue to uh, practice Uh, going back to being one of three that uh, started the uh, what was then called the Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund which is now called Earth Justice and while it started with three there are hundreds now uh, lawyers in that field. The second thing is that while I was uh, uh, in uh, Chiapas at the time of the subcomandante Marcos I went I was there on behalf of the Mexico uh, Human Rights Commission and investigating uh, uh, the facts and meeting with the people in villages. And so I wasn't there as the lawyer for subcomandante I Marcos.
0: I Thank you very much for that. yes. And bravo for the environment uh, that's really, you know, Unfortunately, we're still struggling so much with environmental issues. So congratulations and thank you for, on behalf of all of us, for the work that you've done in that area. So getting back to the Romani people, what would you, I think would be interesting for people to try to understand because there's so much mythology about what is more commonly known as gypsies, um, is what do you think of the, the origins of these people? Can you give us some insight into that?
1: Well, I mean, a, a question that frequently comes up is who are they and what are they? And, uh, you know, they are peoples persecuted by the Nazis as a subhuman race like the Jews. And they are people originating from northwest India, uh, some 1,500 years ago that left and, uh, for reasons uh, unknown, uh, a peoples with their own Sanskrit-based language, beliefs, rituals, customs, traditions that have somehow long survived discrimination, prejudice, mass murder, and cultural genocide. Yeah,
0: that, and, and, uh, Amazing that they that yeah, the, they came from the Punjab area of India, I believe. That, right. That Rajasthan,
1: Punjab direction. and Northwest India. And this is known through linguistic analysis. There uh, in the late uh, uh, 18th century, linguistic analysis uh, really determined their origin.
0: The Sanskrit. Yes.
1: Sanskrit, that Sanskrit. It's a Sanskrit-based language.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. Who who would even imagine that there was a Sanskrit-based language? That's that, and they still to this day use that language. Yeah, that's incredible. You know,
1: yeah. Hindi and other uh, Indian languages are
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, similar.
0: So they they um they have a particular. Do they they wherever the gypsies are and over these 1,500 years, have they maintained a certain lifestyle?
1: Well, first of all, the term gypsies that you just used mm-hmm. is really recognized as uh, politically uh, incorrect. They are the the Rome or the Romani uh, people. And the origin of that reference, uh, gypsies, uh, uh, is likely derived from the erroneous notion that their ancestors came from Egypt. When they mm-hmm. came, I think, to the British Isles, there, there was th- this confusion uh, uh, arose, and it stuck. So, you know, they're known as uh, the, the Rome or the Romani people uh, more correctly.
0: Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So we'll, we're going to use that term Romani people for the the purposes of our conversation, um, I think, as I said, less less known though perhaps in the world. But again, this question of the of their lifestyle did they have they maintain this? Do they maintain the same lifestyle over you know hundreds of years and whichever country they find themselves in? Do they maintain that same lifestyle?
1: Well, I'm not sure what you mean by lifestyle. I mean, there are uh, um, commonalities amongst the people, but uh, as with all people that migrate and move from places to places uh, because of persecution or whatever, uh, they There's borrowing of uh, sometimes of beliefs and traditions and rituals and borrow words uh, from the local area uh, in the language. And so there are differences. Uh, You know, there's a common reference in literature to so-called the Romani or Gypsy tribes. Uh, A a more correct term is vitsa, uh, and there are many different visas or or groupings and there are linguistic differences and differences in uh, traditions and culture. One interesting thing about uh, immigration that's common to the Roma, but to other peoples too, is that um, peoples that came from uh, uh, elsewhere in Europe, Eastern Europe, whatever, coming to America often preserved uh, culture, traditions, rituals, beliefs that were held in, in the old country and they preserved them and continued with them while back home their uh, brothers and sisters uh, subject to war, subject to uh, assimilation pressures and and other pressures, uh, have you know would often lose, some of the uh, traditions and, and uh, uh, cultures and rituals. And so they were preserved here. And that's true of, the, of many of the Roma living in Los Angeles, for example, have traditions and, and uh, rituals and things that were basically lost in many places from where they came, where there are Roma still living, but uh, um, don't have them.
0: So what would be, well, so that's, you know, maybe a surprise to many listeners about the fact that Los Angeles, California in 2021, we still, we we have uh, Romani people amongst us. What would be some of the, what are you thinking of when you're talking about rituals that they still maintain or
1: tradition? Well, you know, um, uh, many uh, people's, uh, have uh, specific uh, rituals and beliefs of, about birth, marriage, uh, death. Uh, and while there are many elements that are are of what's practiced among some Roma in Los Angeles that still exists in, uh, for example, in Serbia, uh, some of that... Is, Uh, was lost uh, in those countries, again, because of uh, cultural genocide, uh, physical, you know, mass murder genocide, uh, and the pressures of communism and other uh, elements.
0: So what, what do you, why do you think then that the Romani people would be a people that have been persecuted so much? What what is it about them that, that seems to engender this this type of response?
1: Um, you know, they, they have long been the victims of prejudice and repression. Uh, I think their their dark skin, strange language, unfamiliar customs sets them apart from the residents of uh, many countries through which they traveled. At the best, they have always uh, been economic and social outcasts, and frequently their fate has been much worse.
0: Because I think the image has often been, and maybe this is in, you know, it could be from popular movies and so forth, about about Romani people, uh, you know, living in enclaves, uh, outdoors, living a more outdoor life. More, more, let's say, with with tents or, you know, living with clothes that set them apart from the surrounding population, special kinds of clothes? I don't know if uh, case know, today, uh, but...
1: There are stereotypical views about uh, many different peoples. And uh, there are, you know, there's two kind of paradigm regarding the Rome. one is romanticized musicians dancing
2: yes
3: um,
1: joie de vie you know living the gypsy lifestyle on the road
2: carefree, yeah. carefree,
1: carefree and uh, you know and footloose and the other paradigm is a criminal race of people that move from place to place steal children uh, steal uh, uh, from the land wherever they're they're passing through, and that they're just simply a criminal race, that was the uh predominant uh, paradigm that the Nazis saw about Roma and you know, and had similar stereotypical views uh, of the uh,
0: worthlessness of Jews. Yes, right. so here are these you know, very unique people. And here you are, uh, a United States attorney, a California attorney. How did you come to have the gypsies be part of your law practice and part of your life, really?
1: The pathway was another part of uh, my life and profession, music. Uh, When I started uh, college, I uh, began taking uh, courses in ethnomusicology, and as a musician, uh, joined some folk ensembles and uh, became exposed to the music of the of the Romani people, as well as t- uh, meeting and taking some classes with and playing music with. A professor who had come from Ireland to UCLA, Walter Starkey, who was then the president of a nearly 100 year old uh, association called the Gypsy Lore Society. So I became interested in the Romani people. And after a first year of law school, I traveled extensively in Eastern Europe and had contact with uh, Roma, and pr- particularly in the regarding music, but I saw and had contact with with the people. It wasn't until uh, after be, working on projects as a lawyer uh, in Alaska on the East Coast in the San Francisco Bay Area that I came back to L.A. and joined a firm that specialized in the First Amendment and some Roma came in to the office. And at some point, uh, I was engaged in some cases in contact with the Los Angeles Romani community. And certain lights went on as to uh, uh, how my uh, expertise in constitutional law could be of great service, and also that, no, that apparently no one, in the U.S., uh, expert in civil rights and constitutional law had ever uh, used those skills on on their behalf. So I became, uh, uh, I started to get uh, quite involved, uh, including uh, in political issues with them regarding uh, the uh, efforts to raise political and historical consciousness about the what happened to the. Roma during the Holocaust era, and that uh, uh, involved uh, many years of work uh, and uh, lobbying uh, the U.S. Congress, uh, the the president uh, to include Roma in the Holocaust Memorial Council and in Holocaust the remembrance uh, events, and it led to me becoming a a lawyer in various uh, cases and negotiations regarding uh, uh, reparations.
0: That's really quite remarkable that, you know, it's it's almost, it's almost like a destiny story and certainly somehow that that path came from your music and you're becoming a musician and it must have um, created a special trust between you and your client Romani clients
1: well actually actually, at the beginning, the exact opposite, because after uh uh being successful on behalf of a of a uh, one particular family early in this work, they invited me for dinner, and I brought an instrument and played some music and it was uh confusing and disorienting for them because a musician uh, would have much, would be accorded much less respect than a lawyer. So <laughs> I was, I was, I was uh, um, kind of demoting myself, <laughs> but I, I didn't stop. And I continue to, to play music with uh, Roma and, and for Roma.
0: Well, um, would you like to tell us about that first case? That you said you
1: won. Well, it uh, you know the term case uh, well, yes. doesn't necessarily mean litigation right. in, in an issue, and I don't remember exactly. Uh, actually, I mean it, it had something to do with uh, with a city that either prohibited or limited uh, uh, the opportunity to talk about the future, otherwise put fortune telling. Oh,
0: or, yes. You know, otherwise so. called fortune telling.
1: Yeah, it's talking about the future. And, uh, you know, it's a kind of spiritual counseling, which is based on uh, traditions and beliefs and abilities that they that many carried from their time in India. Yes. And, and a profession that they... Uh, employed as they traveled from place to place, and it was a profession that was also a target of uh, of uh, religion of of the of church prejudice because scriptures, whether Christian, Jewish, or otherwise, uh, um, you know, prohibit soothsayers and fortune tellers from. Uh, uh, access to believers.
0: And um, so what What was your argument uh, to the city uh, to be able to preserve fortune-telling?
1: Well, you know, uh, there are were different kinds of laws and what that may perhaps first matter was about, I don't really remember. But uh, uh, to this day, and that... That was in the early 1980s. And so we're now 2021. And uh, there are still cities that prohibit fortune telling or psychic sciences, whatever you want to call it. There are cities that relegate it to uh, uh, the periphery of the city, like, like adult theaters or something that kind of zoning. There are laws that make it uh, uh, discretionary on uh, uh, the part of uh, politicians uh, to grant or deny permits without any uh, standards whatsoever, just uh, on whim, or if they think it's not in the public interest or what have you, which also raises constitutional issues.
0: So this this kind of gives us an example of, of- what you're talking about with First Amendment rights. In a sense. Right.
1: This is, now, uh, I, there was a case that I argued in the California Supreme Court and won in 1985. And it concerned the city of Azusa outside of Los Angeles. Uh, and Azusa is spelled A-Z-U-S-A. And their slogan was that you can find in Azusa anything from A to Z in the <laughs> USA. However, you weren't permitted to talk about the future. Uh, fortune telling was categorically prohibited. And uh, this this was a major case in the California Supreme Court. And it was a First Amendment case. The right of the speaker, the fortune teller, and the right of the listener to uh, access uh, this information if they so chose.
0: So you, you were able to in, uh, make it so that the Azusa could not inhibit fortune telling.
1: Right. That, to, you know, from that day on uh, it was unconstitutional for cities to categorically prohibit uh, fortune telling. Now, I mean, only recently uh, In the wine country in Northern California, I dealt with a city that uh, had this kind of still had this kind of prohibition. This is last year. I mean, this year, actually, earlier this year. And interestingly, the city was represented by the same law firm that defended unsuccessfully Azusa in 1985. So there's still uh, cities that prohibit or drastically limit uh or make nearly impossible uh to obtain licenses to engage in this activity
0: that yeah and that's kind of amazing considering well as we as we are talking here in los angeles california because the idea of of uh being able to talk with someone about your future through fortune telling or to read your palms which would be another Another tradition that would come from India, I believe, and probably still, you know, in India, they people read palms and other places in the world. Um, you know, here in Los Angeles, that they, they embrace the the they would they would want to run toward the opportunity to to have their fortunes told. So it is pretty amazing in 2021 that 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 still is a problem in in some cities. Well, in
1: some cities, it is.
0: In some cities, yes. So basically, you know, it seems as if what you were describing is really initially that the Romani people had a great influence on sort of the trajectory of your trajectory of your particular your life as a lawyer and sort of brought you into you know, very a very fascinating kind of work.
1: Um, yeah, but I had dealt with uh, this kind, you know, uh, First Amendment and licensing issues, uh, almost from the beginning of my career, I began uh, uh, as a law clerk to the uh, chief justice of the Alaska Supreme Court. And then I had a fellowship for a couple of years uh, that I uh, out of the University of Pennsylvania Law, law School. And I was involved in uh, civil rights law in particular. And one of the first cases, uh, in terms of First Amendment licensing, was representing uh, an underground newspaper at Brown University, mm. in Providence. And it was kind of the same sort of issues. And so, and I've uh, at some point had, did a lot of work in the area of, of church and state and religion, but you know, uh, the bulwark of the uh, the law uh, created in the United States uh, on this issue of this sort of licensing stuff that I've just talked about comes from the Jehovah's Witnesses cases in the late uh, uh, 30s, 1940s, and yeah. I by I had a uh, uh, um, an odd uh, connection to the lawyer that argued those cases. When I was in uh, on the East Coast, um, he had uh, done many cases in the US Supreme Court, an older guy, and landed up uh, in Providence hiding out because he had uh, lost the first round of representing Muhammad Ali in his draft case in oh. New York. And the Nation of Islam was really angry with him and they were running after him and he was hiding out and he landed up in my office and we worked together for a while.
0: That is remarkable. That That's an amazing story. Well, you know, as we're coming to the end of this conversation, I'm thinking more about, well, I have been thinking about it since I knew we were going to talk about the Romani people. Um, and I think I mentioned to you some time ago that my grandmother uh, used to go in Los Angeles, California, used to go to the Romani people once a month to have her fortune told. So I've kind of heard about that because she was from Odessa, Russia, had grown up uh, with Romani people being around her. And um, I'm just wondering, thinking about them and their way of life, if you feel there's something that that the Romani people have that we can learn from? Is there some way of life or some culture, cultural way that they live their life that
1: well, you know, I think my answer uh, uh, is about stereotypes and and generalization. I had lunch today with a Los Angeles film producer. He's a Romani. Uh, I was on the phone right after that with uh, one of the great Romani experts in uh, the country who has a PhD from University of Pennsylvania who has testified in many cases. And she learned uh, a lot of what she knows from a University of Texas professor uh, uh, who is a, a, a Rome. Uh, so... You know, there are people in many walks of life with many different kinds of degrees uh, and uh, many professions that are, uh, are Romani. So, you know, uh, over time, uh, they've, uh, there, there's the pressures of uh, assimilation and uh, other uh, elements in society. That lead to changing uh, people and actually, uh, um, help, you know, works at the edges of uh, uh, ending cultures and and peoples. So, um, you know, I, I I'm uh, one should think about that when generalizing about a peoples, whether Jews, Roma, or any other peoples.
0: I think that's that's a really perfect um, way of, of responding to the, that whole idea. And I think if you were talking to somebody in the movie business today who's Romani, I think maybe it's time to have a, a great movie that would tell the real story and help people see Romani people in, in a much broader way than the state. Right.
1: But, you know, there's just more... Uh attention to you know the, the lascivious and the uh, uh outrageous and the colorful and the more stereotypical views about the romani people and another peoples that are called gypsies but are really a uh, different peoples uh that are uh very prevalent in the united states and these are the uh so-called gypsies of the uh British Isles, the Irish, Scottish, and English travelers, also called Gypsies, who live in in the uh, uh, British Isles, uh, often in mobile homes or caravans, and are confused with the Romani people. And so there are TV shows and what have you about you know their uh, their so-called Gypsy weddings and what have you, but they're they're different from the Romani people.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's that that's something that people do not do not really are able right. to differentiate right. very well right. at all. Well, right. you know, Barry Fisher, I thank you on behalf of a lot of our listeners for the contribution you've made to protecting people. And you know, in a way, by by protecting the Romani people, you're practicing a law that protects all of us. So thank you very much for the wonderful career you've had and thank you for being On this program today.
1: All right well thank
0: you. Bye bye.
1: Bye.
0: Like I'm doing right now and then I I stop it I hit but thank you for yeah for that I I will yeah I'll I'll abbreviate and maybe improvise a little bit. All right so this is how I'm going to begin um Welcome, everybody, from around the world to Commentaries from the Edge. This is Karen Goldberg, and I'm extremely honored and very uh, delighted and and grateful to Rabbi David Wolpe of Los Angeles, California, for spending time with us today um, with a very demanding schedule that he has had now and for many years, and I'm particularly honored because Rabbi Wolpe is a great spiritual leader, not only for uh, for California but for our country. And he is um, title is the Max Weber Senior Rabbi of Sinai Temple, which is a very significant uh, Jewish temple here in Los Angeles, California, a very large congregation. Um, just to give you a hint, a little bit of his background. I want to sort of start with his books. He has, he's the author of eight books and they include one of the national bestsellers, which is making loss matter, creating meaning in difficult times, which probably could not be a more relevant subject to examine in the times that we're living in right now. His latest book is titled David, the divided heart a pre- uh, And it's published by Yale University Press, and I will make sure that will be on our podcast in terms of listeners being able to learn how to access that. Um, Rabbi Wolpe has been the leader of a significant temple here and a spiritual leader in general, and he's taught at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America in New York. And also the American University here in Los Angeles, as well as Hunter College in New York and UCLA. So I mention all of that as just a hint of how he is the most one of the most qualified people to address a question that is the topic for today. Which is the question is what is a Jew? And as a Jew myself, um, I'm very interested in in seeing what his answer is to that question, if there is such an answer, and uh, because I'm asked that quite a bit, and I've always had trouble answering it, and usually comes in the form of uh, being a Jew, is it a religion, is it a people, is it a race, is it ethnicity? So why is it that with with Jews, with us, uh, that question seems to persist? So, first of all, thank you for inviting me, and it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, I think
2: the answer to the question, Aaron, is the reason that it's hard is that the categories that we normally think in are not actually the same categories that Judaism developed in, because Judaism is not a religion. That may surprise some of your listeners, but a religion is something you believe. So, for example if somebody decides they believe Jesus is the son of God and the Messiah, they're Christian. If the day after they decide, Oh no, 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 no. I was wrong about that. He's not, he's just a guy. They're not Christian anymore. That's not true with Judaism. If tomorrow I said to you, you know, all that stuff that I've been talking about, about the Torah and God, I don't believe any of it anymore. I'm still Jewish. So being Jewish is not identical to being a religion. On the other hand, It's not a race, because even though some people who hate Jews hate them because they say they're an inferior race, there are black Jews and yellow Jews and red Jews and white Jews, and you can't convert to be a new race, and you can convert to be a Jew. So none of the categories that we normally think of people as falling into exactly fit. You can have no Jewish practice no particular Jewish identity and so be a Jew. So it's hard to find the categories that fit in modern America and that's why I call Jews a religious family because clearly religion is a very significant part of what it means to be Jewish. But you're born into Judaism, like you're born into a family. You can join Judaism as you can join a family. And the only way really to leave Judaism is not to dislike it, just like people dislike their families, they're so part of them, but to choose a new family. So if you chose, for example, to become Muslim, then in time you're not Jewish anymore, even though according to Jewish law you might be considered Jewish, but organically the community doesn't consider you Jewish, and that's because you chose a different family. So it's the best category that I've been able
0: to come up with to explain who we are so i have a feeling that that for a lot of people asking that question and for the fact that that question comes up in our society i'm not sure that's going to be a satisfying answer uh because let's say um when you think about you know the history of jews oftentimes somehow those people that are in the category of hating Jews, often address Jews as a race, right. and and as an example, in Los Angeles, California, most of let's say up until even the nineteen sixties, um, the club there were clubs, organizations, neighborhoods which were white only. So right. if okay, let's say if we put aside. The idea of, you know, we're a family, we're a religious family, but then to many people, no matter what you would say, we're not white. And seems so, like race has become such an issue in our society in particular. Well, the first thing I would say is nobody should be defined by the people who hate that. The fact that people who hate Jews think of them as a race doesn't make Jews a race.
2: It just means that some people who hate them think they're a race. And second, no, you're right. Whiteness does not track on Judaism very well. One of the reasons is that there are a lot of black Jews um, from Ethiopia or black uh, synagogues in the South that uh, long ago converted to Judaism. Um, And so, yeah, it doesn't fit very well. it's, It's the reason that I chose that definition. Because it seems to me to accommodate all the categories, and the fact that people don't like the definition is not the same as it being inaccurate. Uh, especially for people who don't like the definition,
0: or the people who don't like Jews. Well, right, exactly. So, so in a way, it, it's. But it's interesting that let's say if if we are in the category when people think about religions, you know, we're in that in that line of you know, Christianity, Catholicism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and then Judaism. And and yet, somehow, um, you know, so often the question, people are not asked, you know, what is a Christian? What is a Buddhist? But, right. but they keep asking, what is a Jew? I think for exactly the reasons I said. Mm-hmm. Because we developed in a different civilization and therefore have a different definition
2: of what a Jew is than other traditions might. Um, I I don't make any apologies for that. If you want to be upset because we don't fit into the definition that you, not you, Karen, but you, the person outside of Judaism, think we should, I apologize. I don't define myself by what somebody else decides I am. And and Jews have the right to define themselves just like everybody else does.
0: So when you say... uh... Because of our civilization, what, what exactly are you thinking of because of where we came from? Because we grew up in ancient
2: Middle East, what is now called the Middle East. At the time, it wasn't called the Middle East. Um, in uh, At a tribal time, when people associated themselves in terms of tribes, and the idea of tribe didn't have a negative definition as it does now. And tribes are like families in that sense. That is, you're born into them. Sometimes you don't like the tribe you're a part of, but you're still a part of it. You can not join tribes, and the only way really
0: to leave your tribe is to join another one. But since we no longer have a tribal society, we don't think of definitions quite right that way. Okay, so yeah, so that that would definitely that the tribal aspect of it is what's really unique. And maybe I think, mm-hmm. go ahead. What were you going to say? No, I just said I think so. I think yeah, you're right. I think yeah. So. So the tribal yeah, so that that's the thing. And I think maybe so is it is it that sense that somehow um, we're always the other?
2: Well that's the, the idea of being the other is a significant um, is a significant factor in the development of anti Semitism. Um, because for most of Jewish history in most of the places where we lived, we were the identifiable of There were Russians and Jews, there were Frenchmen and Jews, there were Germans and Jews. Um, this is one of the things, by the way, that makes America different. There aren't Americans and Jews. Americans come in all different stripes and colors and backgrounds and languages and religions and everything. And one of the reasons, maybe the reason why Jews have flourished in America is precisely because Nobody would look at the country and say, ah, you see, there are all these Americans and Jews. Not so long ago, um, one of the presidents of France, I think this was, when I say not so long, 25 years ago, there was a bombing in France and he said Frenchmen and Jews were killed. Frenchmen and no Jews? No Frenchmen? Frenchmen and Jews. But in fact, the Jews were also Frenchmen. Oh, but right. in, the, in his mind, he had a distinction. No American president of the right or of the left would ever say that. Because that's not how America thinks of identity. Right. So because in America
0: Jews aren't the other, we've done much better here. And thank God for that. Yes. And hopefully that will continue. Hopefully oh, right. that yeah. will continue. That continue. So, you know, then the category that we're in, you know, you you, you check a box on the census and you, yeah. ha- and you have to check... Um, Right. Your race. Most Jews, at least in the United States, even though as you just said, you know, there are African, right. there are even there are Japanese and there are Jews in, and in India right. who right. look completely Indian, of course. I mean no. appear to be Indian. Um, so most Jews here check white. Right.
2: It's just easy and convenient because there is a separate category, some will write in Jewish. Um and it is certainly true that um There is considerable overlap between the way Ashkenazi Jews look and whiteness in America. So if you don't dress distinctively, you don't wear a kippah like what I'm wearing now, um, then one wouldn't necessarily know that many Jews were Jewish. Um, and, And that's one of the reasons why Jews have dissolved into American society to some extent. What is interesting about this, well, one of the things that's interesting about this, is that Jews have been hated for being distinctive and for assimilating. That's one of the things about anti-Semitism that is so astonishing is Jews are hated for being capitalist, and they're hated for being communist. They're hated for assimilating, and they're hated for not-assimilating. They're hated for being weak and powerless, and they're hated for being strong and and having an army. There's almost nothing that you can't Jews for, but in the end, it's actually a hatred of Jews, it's not about what they do. Um, and so
0: it's even more complicated. Uh, nobody ever said that a discussion about Jews was easy. (laughs) Well, yes, and many people have said being Jewish is not easy in itself. Um, so, so this is really a question that really. Will probably always be with us. I mean, it's not since since many people don't have the nuances of understanding that you're talking about. Uh, then I guess, in a way, we're all maybe we. It would be good for each Jew to be equipped to be ready for that question and to be able to um, answer it in some of the ways that you're talking about. It is, yeah. It is no. It is not an easy um, question for Jews to answer, which is why um, sometimes you'll get,
2: for example, I've got a couple in my office, and the non-Jewish partner will say, I don't understand these parents. They don't observe the holidays. They don't observe the dietary laws. They don't go to synagogue. And they're upset that I'm not Jewish. Why? Why do they care? And the answer is, I mean, first of all, (laughs) There is this an element of hypocrisy in that, but the answer is because it's familial and there is this sense of, but, but what happened to our family? That, you know, that somebody from outside our family doesn't want to join it or be part of it. or So, um, it's, yeah, it's a very confusing and multifaceted question, and I think you're
0: right. It won't go away. So that we're we're kind of, so this whole issue also about, you know, which came up, and I guess partly was provoked by this, the articles that have been coming out, was provoked Uh, by what what was uh, said by Whoopi Goldberg on on her television program. And then it it, it, it kind of, then suddenly there was really um, a more popular, common idea about Really asking that question, what is a Jew? And it seems that even with with all that that happened, there doesn't seem to have been an answer that that anyone has really come up with. More than what you're explaining, um, so hey, if, I, you know I just... you,
2: this is the answer. I really do, or right? I would have said it to you. I think that even though, as you very justly point out if you ask 9 out of 10 Jews, they won't come up with this answer. I really think it's the right one, and I think it should spread. I'm glad your podcast is helping us spread this answer. I think the answer is Jews are a religious family. And if people understood that, then they would understand that a family involves all sorts of different kinds of people. There are a lot, for example, there are a lot of poor Jews. A lot of poor Jews. as there are a number of wealthy Jews. There are, you know, Thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of black Jews. And and people don't appreciate this reality. Instead, they see, like they think Steven Spielberg is every Jew. And, and it's just not true. I mean, we have, we can, now I understand this is in part just economy of means. That is, once you have a stereotype of someone, so that people now, they're taken care of in my mind. I don't have to think about them. I don't have to complicate my picture of them. I know what it is to be a black in America. I know what it is to be a Jew in America. I know what it is to be a Catholic in America. The truth is, you don't. Not really. Not that you have one image. Um, We're all, every people is many, many, many different kinds of images. You know, I I used to think about that sometimes when I would pass the Pennsylvania Dutch, because I grew up in Philadelphia. And in Harrisburg, I was born in Harrisburg and grew up in Philadelphia. So from time to time we would see the Pennsylvania Dutch. And I would think they can't be as uniform, even if they all dress alike, you know, they can't be as uniform as my imagination <laughs> makes them. And indeed, I know a little bit more about them now, they're not. Because people just don't fit into the boxes that we wish they
0: would. So that's sort of a human phenomenon then. I mean that just I, we it, want it we want it we want it easy. Yeah, but it is and as, as, and as my
2: grandmother used to say in Yiddish, Jews are like other people, only more so. <laughs> and, and I always I, I thought that was such a great line. I was like, there's, there are some parts of the human predicament that, that reach a the special zenith in the Jewish world, like self-definition. Um, it's not easy.
0: Yeah. So so we, we're really like, okay, so I, I think that's a great idea to have a campaign to start with with your answer, you know, we're a religious family.
2: If, and, any, if any of your listeners want to take out a billboard, I'm happy <laughs> to, to, to...
0: Well, it could be, maybe it's a sermon that's going to come. Yeah.
2: it could, you know? could well be. Right, I wrote an article recently about it, the Times of Israel, a very short article. Um, but yes, it bears repeating.
0: It bears repeating. So, you know, I think that, that it would be really great if we... Um, well, if we imagine a, a a fabulous world in which there there was the human family yes. and then in that world you had various different members of it um I mean because it's it's what's going on right now is almost you know a a feeling of more and more feelings of hatred amongst people, and you know Asians especially in in areas like Los Angeles have been experiencing uh, that stereotype idea about you know Asians always uh, being successful, being bright, uh, everything's fine when in fact there's a huge number, particularly let's say we could take the Korean community in Los Angeles where there's poverty, where there's a lot of difficulty. So yeah, yeah it's hard it's hard to imagine, but you know maybe maybe we can get to a world at some point where we, we could be uh, a human family. It seems like we have to do that for our survival. would be
2: quite a wonderful world if, if such a thing were possible. Um, I think that the, the there are two different formula that people advance for this. And I like your formula better, but I'm going to just mention both. Um, the first is that everybody should basically be alike. We should have one kind of person that religions divide and cultures divide and nations divide and so on. But I don't really believe that everybody will ever be alike because I've never met a person in general. Everybody grows up in a particular world, speaks a particular language, treasures a particular culture, Grows, grows up in a different land. I don't even want everybody to feel like I don't want to be. I don't want the Scotsman and the Belarusian and the and the and the Taiwanese and the and 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 the Saudi Arabian and the Los Angelinos to all be exactly alike. What what a loss to the world. Um, instead, what I prefer is a, a patch or a quilt of a world in which people respect differences and understand that at bottom, we're all alike, but only at bottom, not all through. That we're all fundamentally human. We're all children of God. We all have an essential dignity, but we have different cultures and languages and ideas, and that's good and enriching, and it's it need not be a cause of uh, anger and anguish.
0: So beautifully put and such a simple um, would be such a simple motto and absolutely wouldn't that be a boring world? We would we would yeah. drive each other crazy by being so bored I, you know uh, I, if, we, if, we, if we were all alike. Um, yeah. so yes, yeah, so that that perspective of the enrichment of it, you know, even the excitement of it, of each of us yeah. bringing something different. To the human family, let's say, um, it seems like it should be, it would be a vision that would be simple to get to, and yet, uh, you know, over the millennium, it, it seems like there's there's something else at work inside the human psyche that resists this. I, I think it's a matter of somehow um, feeling that someone has to be powerful and someone has to be weak. I think that that's a big part of it. I agree with you. And also the other part of it is what you mentioned earlier about being the other. You know, I often
2: I often say somebody who thinks that all people should just get along and don't understand why people don't should go visit a play. And see what happens when a new kid comes on the playground. Do the other kids go, oh, look, a new child. Let us share our toys. <laughs> no, they don't. Right? They have an instinctive distrust of the outsider and so and so, you have to overcome that in people it has to be educated out of us it's not like we're all good and, and then all these blocks come in no, we're complicated creatures I really think so, we have good and bad in us, but we know ultimately what's good most people I think ultimately want to do the good, and so we have to try to overcome those other emotions, but they're very powerful and and the ability to justify even not so good actions in us is also very
0: powerful. Uh, we're we're rationalistic creatures who can rationalize a lot. Yeah. So so there's there's the tension, I guess. You know, mm-hmm. uh, going forward, and and yeah. I think uh, just like we can hope that you know the world can be part of the the, the world that we're in in the United States. Of Not being separate as Jews, but being Americans and being part of the the variety of what it means to be an American will continue yeah. um, and and that you know, I guess we hope there's some progress in in human development I hope and, so. and it may happen, and maybe you know i would I would say that you as a spiritual leader um, is in a position to be someone that will have an effect on us and to kind of create revelations. You do. create I, revelations. I, I think that it has gotten better. I really do. I think human beings, um, there's less
2: violence in our world, um, than there was. I mean, you wouldn't want to live in a city 500 years ago. The worst place on earth right now is better than, than London was, you know, in the middle ages. Um, some things have gotten better unfortunately our capacity for destruction has also gotten better so when we make a mistake now more people are implicated than they were in the past because weaponry is so much stronger but yeah i do believe that spiritual leaders have a responsibility to try to bring unity and and it's particularly sad and disturbing when they don't when they use their platforms um,
0: to bring division yes that, yeah, that's, that's really, um, the opposite of what, what we hope for and, and and yes, when you look at history, you see a lot of religious leaders are, are, have had transformative effects on people like someone like Martin Luther King, uh, someone like, like Gandhi, um, and Desmond Tutu in, in South Africa, so, um, so thank you for, everything that you add to to our world thank and you thank you so much for the discussion i really enjoyed it and i uh, i appreciate your bringing up the really interesting and intricate questions thank you so much and i i really appreciate all that you offer and i just have to end by uh, i have a quote here that came from you i believe and it says uh one is a hero for using one's gifts in ways that improve the world. And so I, I have to believe then that you are a hero and I appreciate you being a hero on this program. Thank and you. And I'll look forward to the next time I see you. Me too. Shabbat, Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Hello, this is Karen Goldberg of Commentaries from the Edge. The Next episode on What is a Jew has some. Oh gosh. The latest episode of Commentaries from the Edge has some sound limitations because of a transfer from a Zoom conversation. Please enjoy the next episode with Rabbi David Wolpe on the topic, what is a Jew? Thank you.